Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In the 80s and 90s, few sports stars loomed as large as Bo Jackson. A Kansas City Royal and an Oakland Raider, he was the rare athlete to play two professional sports. His strength and power seemed supernatural. He soared into end zones, ran the 40-yard dash in 4.13 seconds, hit meteoric home runs, and broke baseball bats over his head for fun. And those were just his documented exploits. Because Bo played in an era before smartphones, stories circulated that can never be entirely proven or disproven that he was capable of even more impressive feats. The guy was the stuff of legends. For this reason, Jeff Perlman has entitled his new biography of Bo, The Last Folk Hero. Today on the show, Jeff and I talk about Bo's Paul Bunyan-esque stature and the real life behind the legend. We discuss both the flaws and strengths of Bo Jackson and how natural talent can be both a hindrance and a help as we trace his life from an impoverished upbringing as one of 10 kids to how he managed to secure an arrangement where he got to play two professional sports. Jeff explains how Bo never liked to practice because he was so naturally gifted he didn't need to, why Bo didn't take the deal when the Yankees tried to draft him out of high school, the flashbulb moments he achieved in college and the pros, how a hip injury ended his football days but didn't entirely finish him off for baseball, and why, after such a neon career, Bo has largely disappeared from the public eye. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash Bo. All right, Jeff Perlman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. You got a new biography out about Bo Jackson. And if you were a kid in the 80s or 90s, Bo Jackson was the guy. I think most of my neighborhood friends had that poster of Bo with the shoulder pads, baseball bat draped across his shoulders, looking like Achilles on the fields of Troy. If you play Tecmo Bowl with your friends, you got in fights with who's going to be the Raiders. Because if you were the Raiders... You got to be number 34, which is Bo Jackson. You can do these insane 99-yard runs. You know, back before there was YouTube and you watch sports clips, highlights, you had to get those VHS tapes. I remember I had a VHS tape that had the infamous play where Bo Jackson runs across the outfield wall like Uh Spider-Man. So he's the guy. And you make this case in this book that Bo Jackson was the last folk hero. Why is that? Why was Jackson the last American folk hero? So that was, um, I originally heard that terminology from another really great writer named Joe Posnanski, and he called him the last folk hero. And I was like, wow, it's great. That's so true. And I told Joe I was going to borrow it. I mean, nowadays, everything is videotaped. Everything is recorded. And obviously not just from TV cameras, but from the phones we all carry in our pockets. So if some 12-year-old kid in Bethesda jumps over an eight-foot fence, someone's going to record it and splash it all over TikTok and Instagram, and it's going to go viral in a second. There was none of that with Bo Jackson, none. And I mean, his games were on TV, obviously, but like he truly was, I start this whole book with a quote, a Paul Bunyan reference. And he really was Paul Bunyan or kind of Bigfoot or like the Loch Ness monster where he did these things and you, it just doesn't even sound real. Like he, he ran a four, one, three at Auburn, which is amazing. He was 220 something pounds. But then when he was with the Raiders, he ran a 41740 on grass in pads. Like it's preposterous. His when he was a senior in high school, he won the state decathlon championship for the second time in a row. Didn't want to run the last event, which was the mile. So he basically got far enough ahead so he wouldn't have to run the mile. And then the next day, his team, McAdory High School, was playing in a state playoff game for baseball. 
And Bo Jackson pitches the only time that year, and he strikes out 13 in the win. And this is the same season when he wrapped up his – he stole 90 out of 91 bases as a high schooler. I mean, it's just on and on, all this stuff where you would go, no, that doesn't – now, uh-uh. He, vo- he jumped over a Volkswagen. That doesn't make I – I need to see it. It's like, well, you can't see it because not everyone had a camera. So, like, sometimes you just need to trust – the Bo Jackson stories because they're ridiculous. Well, yeah, and there's outside of sports, there's these stories about Bo Jackson doing these crazy things. Like you start off the book talking about when he played for the White Sox, the plane was going <laughs> down and everyone yeah. said like Bo Jackson is the one that saved it. And there's people that said, yeah, that's how it happened. And other people, well, I don't know, but no one filmed it. So you, you, it's, it becomes a legend. I actually knew, so you don't always know how you're going to open a book. But as soon as I heard that, I was like, this has to be it. He they're flying back from California. He's with the White Sox. He's a reduced version of himself because of the hip injury. And plane all of a sudden starts making some noises. Uh, Craig Gerbex, an infielder, looks out the window and sees the, the half the plane on fire. People start freaking out. Frank Thomas is wrapping himself in blankets and <laughs> pillows. And guys are taking out religious medallions. And Ozzie Guillen is praying to Jesus and the whole thing. It's crazy. And all of a sudden, the cockpit door opens. And Bo Jackson walks out and he had been in the cockpit talking to the pilots and he's like, all right, everyone, don't worry. They got it under control. Everyone just get your seatbelts on and we're going to be okay. And it's this amazing story. Well, then someone else tells me the story and they say, no, 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 no. Bo Jackson was sitting in the plane. The plane starts going down. He walks into the cockpit to help them fly the plane. So I have two versions of this amazing story and they both end with them landing in Des Moines, which they did at an abandoned airport way early in the morning. They're all starving. They're all depressed, whatever, you know, almost, almost died in a plane crash. And there's an, there's a kiosk an unattended unopened kiosk. And next to it is a beer keg with the tap locked. And Bo Jackson walks up to it, uses his bare hand, breaks the lock off the keg and they all drink on Bo Jackson. Like, that's Paul Either. Bunyan stuff right there. That's- it's Paul Bunyan stuff. I freaking love that stuff. And there's so many things, there's so many things like that in his life that again, nowadays, someone on that plane would have videotaped from the plane. Someone would have pulled out their phone. They would have videotaped it. And maybe we just see Bo Jackson praying to Jesus sitting in the seat. Maybe none of it happened. Like, but we're allowed to use our imagination with Bo Jackson and there's no one left like that. Right. With Bo Jackson, you had to be there to see it. And the only way you can know yeah. about it now is just like, it's, it's stories secondhand. And some YouTube, you know, you can still see him climb up the wall, like him climbing up the wall in Baltimore is a kind of thing that lends itself to mythology. Right. And someone would say, that's the thing about him. That's interesting too. You'd be like, he climbed up a wall. He climbed up the outfield wall, then ran across it, then ran down. And your friend would be like, nah, there's no way. Or your grandpa would tell you that story. And you'd be like, grandpa, you're seriously, you're suffering from your dementia. There's no way this happened. Well, now we have this YouTube clip and it actually adds to the mythology because it's like, if he did that, what else is he able to do? So a theme I picked up as I read your book is the promise and peril of being blessed with incredible supernatural talent. And this is a problem that you don't not only see in sports, but any domain, right? Whether it's art, writing, science, whatever. I mean, I hope we can flesh this theme out looking at the life of Bo Jackson because like that's the, like he was born with just crazy raw talent. So let's start off there. Like what was his upbringing like and when did people first start noticing like this guy, this guy's got something. So he, um, he's one of 10 kids, single mom, Florence Jackson, best from Alabama, born in abject poverty, best from right outside of Birmingham. You know, grew up in a 99% African-American community, was so poor that he literally was going to school, elementary school, either in socks without shoes or his sister's hand-me-down shoes. He was a bully. He was a kid who beat the snot out of other kids, who stole lunch money. His nickname, the origins of his nickname, and this one I did check out, is when he was a kid, there's a local farmer who had um, these hogs on his on these, these boar hogs on his land. And Bo Jackson and a bunch of his friends snuck over there. And there was this one boar who was enormous. And they just gathered around this boar and beat the living snot out of it for three days until it died. They would hit it and just beat it and beat it and beat it. The, the hog wouldn't die. They come back the next day. They come back the third day. The hog finally dies. 
And Bo is short for boar, for boar hog. So that's where the bow kind of stems from. And the thing that's interesting is I wrote a biography of Brett Favre and I wrote a biography of Walter Payton. They have similar sort of origin stories, which is Bo Jackson wasn't a kid playing organized football, but he was a kid throwing rocks at cars and throwing rocks at other kids. He wasn't a little kid doing the high jump or hurdles, but he was a kid scaling fences. He wasn't a kid doing the long jump. He wasn't like idolizing Carl Lewis, but he was jumping over ditches to escape the angry farmer because he stole fruit from his trees. You know, like he was very raw, very raw. Everything he learned really came out of mischief. And his mom wouldn't let him play football. He played in high school in ninth grade against his mom's wishes. He played a lot of summer league baseball. He really didn't get on the map until his junior year of high school. And he was one of three running backs on his team at McAdory High School. He wasn't really the star, but he was a physical specimen. And he started doing things that blew people away, you know, running over two guys at once, making these tackles that were just otherworldly. And at the time, the biggest recruit in college sports in America was Marcus Dupree out of Philadelphia, Mississippi, who was much, he was bigger than Bo. He was stronger than Bo. He was about the same speed. And everyone was talking about Marcus Dupree. But in the state of Alabama, there were whispers about this kid in McAdory who just was some, some kind of athlete. And slowly but surely, scores started to look at him. Well, you, another part, you, you mentioned he was a bully and he beat the snot out of kids. Part of that reason he beat the snot out of kids is he had a stutter and people would make fun of him and he would make sure that they never did that again. Yeah, he had a severe stutter. And it is really interesting. He was actually held back. He said, and it's undeniably true because it, it was a product of the generation, like people back then equated stutter with stupid. Like, oh, he's dumb. Can't get the words out. There was one teacher and one of them, wherever this teacher, she's still alive. It's one of the meanest things I've ever heard. He got in trouble in class one day and the teacher made him stand up in front of the whole class and recite a poem because he knew his stutter was really bad. Like just mean, mean stuff. And I do think one of the things I enjoy about this, this job and doing books is you could say on the base level, okay, Bo Jackson, God, he was such an asshole. What a jerk of a kid. But then you look into it. He's one of 10 kids in a tiny house. They literally don't have running water in their house. He has to go to the outhouse to use the bathroom at night. His roof is tar paper on his house. He is sleeping on a floor. He's oftentimes sleeping against a, a heater and would wake up with heater burns on his body, as would the other kids in that house. His mom did the best she could. She worked as a maid at a local motel, but she would beat the crap out of those kids, you know, physically beat the crap out of those kids. So, oh, and even worse, his father, a guy named A.D. Adams, he wasn't just like an absentee father and, oh, I don't know who my dad is. He lived across town with his own family and had almost nothing to do with Bo Jackson, a little interest in this kid. So I always think it's it's kind of unique to look at someone and on the base level, you could say, God, he was such an asshole. But then you're like, how could he have not been? He was one of 10 kids living in abject poverty, wearing his sister's shoes to school, sleeping against a heater with a father who had nothing, who wanted nothing to do with him. And he was hungry all the time. How are you not going to be an asshole? And something you point out that Bo, he was able to figure out that sports, he saw it at a young age, he had two paths he could go down, right? He could continue chunking rocks at cars and getting in fights and going, that could get even worse. But then he saw like sports could save me from that. Like, and he made the choice to, to choose sports. He was terrified of reform school. Reform school was this idea in his head, like the boogeyman. And he had an older sibling who went to reform school. And apparently his older sibling told him all these stories about kids getting raped in reform school. And he was petrified of reform school. So he did not want to go there. And he starts playing sports. And the thing is, all of a sudden, these coaches are really supportive. He had a baseball coach who would drive you home after school. People treated you special. People treated you different. You got a new uniform. You could see yourself in the local newspaper. He had, um, when he was a, a junior, a local reporter from the Birmingham News came to his house to write a story on him. And she told me the story about it, how he was just showing off left and right. Do you want to see me do this? Oh, I can do this. Watch me do this all in the backyard. And like, you're one of 10 kids. You never get this attention. You're one of 10 kids. You're not special. You were held back. You're old for your grade and you have a stutter. So all of a sudden, here's this thing you do and you do really well. And people white and black are paying attention to you and praising you for it. It's a, it's a definitely a drug, you know? So the coaches recognize this kid's got raw talent, 
But something that, that plagued Jackson throughout his career that he got criticized about was that he was loath to practice. He did not like to practice. Did this no. start when he was in high school? Yes. He was very frustrating. He did not like to practice. He hated lifting weights. He hated running. I mean, again, he wanted to win the decathlon decisively just so he wouldn't have to run the 1500. You know, like he went out of his way to dominate the other events so he wouldn't have to do running. He loved track. He didn't like track workouts. He loved football. He hated football workouts. Baseball, he was okay with all around. He was not a hard worker in a lot of ways. He was naturally gifted. It doesn't, it's not an indictment. He was so gifted and so talented. He just didn't have to work in the way others did. But it drove coaches crazy. Are there other athletes that you've covered or written about the same thing? They were super talented. And because they were talented, they just thought they could get by without practicing. I would say Shaq to a certain degree was not to the same degree, but certainly in that realm. I mean, the thing that's really more interesting is every now and then you get a Walter Payton or a Kobe Bryant where the hardest worker also happens to be the most athletic. And that's when you get otherworldly, otherworldly greatness. And Bo Jackson had otherworldly greatness, but you think, I mean, to jump ahead a little bit, like he wore it as a point of pride that I don't lift weights, right? I don't lift weights and I hate working out in the off season, off season is mine. And he knew he had this natural gift. But then you think about it, like he got hurt and part of it was because he kind of abused his body. You know, he, he was doing these two sports. His body didn't hold up. Maybe doing lifting weights would have helped. Maybe doing extra running would have helped. I'm not, I'm not saying it matters. He doesn't care, but I don't think he's in a, he, I don't think he's a poster child for do less work. It'll make you a better athlete. How did the uh, coaches manage an athlete who didn't want to practice because at the same time, like they, they saw like this guy's really talented, like we need him. So we can't just be like, well, you know, you're off the team because that would, that would be kind of shooting themselves in the foot. So what did they do? It was hard. First of all, high school is the worst because he's your meal ticket and he's your best athlete and he's just not that hard of a worker. And they let a lot of things slide with him. There were times when he was kicked off the team. You can't come back for two days, blah, blah, blah. But times he would quit and come back. But mostly you let it slide in high school, which happens. I mean, it happened in my high school. It probably happened in your high school. The best athletes walk. College was a little interesting. He shows up at Auburn and his freshman year, first of all, he shows up. He's the number two running back recruit in the state of Alabama. Number one was a guy named Alan Evans out of Enterprise. And he was more, if you picture Bo Jackson as like Jim Brown, Alan Evans was more like Gail Sayers, uh, Shifty and, you know, all sorts of jukes. And everyone was super excited for Alan Evans. Well, they're a couple of days in, it's just so obvious that Bo Jackson is at a different level altogether, that Alan Evans is quickly forgotten and he winds up transferring to UC Chattanooga. There was a coach early on, Bo's position coach, his running back coach, who one day grabbed Bo Jackson by the face mask to give him a lecture. And Bo Jackson snapped and said, never grab my face mask again. And the coach was kind of like, ha ha. And Bo Jackson was like, I'm telling you, do not grab my face mask again. And he never did. And Pat Dye was the head football coach at Auburn. And he understood, like, this was my, again, this is my meal ticket. This guy probably isn't going to practice as hard as other guys. Also, you know, Bo Jackson played college baseball for three years, two and a half years at Auburn. And one of the great motivators for him playing baseball was he wouldn't have to have off-season football practices. He hated football practice, hated it. So he was able to play baseball, which has much easier sort of laid-back practices and really embrace that. Well, speaking of before he went to Auburn, so he was at high school when he graduated, he was a recruit, like people were looking at him for college football, but mm -hmm. he was getting looked at or getting offers from the pros. Like he actually got drafted by the Yankees when he was like a senior, correct? It's a crazy story. He's drafted by the Yankees and his mom really wants him to be the first member of the family to go to a four-year college. He had a sibling who went to community college, that's it. And the Yankees draft him in the second round, which is a high pick. And he would have been a first-round pick if they were sure of it, but they weren't. Because scouts were all over him in high school. There was a scout from the Kansas City Royals named Kenny Gonzalez, who was the first on the train. He's basically sending reports to the Royals, like, this is the best athlete I've ever seen. This guy's a freak of nature. But Kenny Gonzalez knew Bo was going to go to Auburn. But the Yankees use a second-round pick. And after you draft someone, you reach out to him, And they couldn't find him. Like, they would call his house. Nobody would answer. They would knock on his door. Nobody would answer. They were doing everything to dodge the Yankees. The Yankees were willing to pay him a boatload of money. And it was two things. Number one, his mom just didn't want him to go to play professional baseball. And also Auburn had guys watching him. And Auburn had guys playing sort of playing offensive line for him, blocking anyone who would dare try to come. So they would have someone sit with his mom at games 
And they would have guys talk to Bo about, you don't want to play in New York. You don't want to play for the Yankees. George Steinbrenner's evil, blah, 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 blah. So the Yankees tried and tried and tried, but they were never going to get him away from Auburn. Well, and the other thing too, it just seems like he was kind of indifferent to the business of sports. Like the, the, the money, it didn't seem to phase him all that much. Well, it's funny. Like, I kind of love this. The Yankees offered to send him to New York with his coach, his high school coach, Terry Brazil, to watch a Yankee-Red Sox game at Yankee Stadium. And the coach is like, Bo, we should totally do this. And Bo Jackson didn't even know the Yankees or Red Sox were rivals. Like, had no idea. The only guy in the Yankees he probably heard of was Reggie Jackson because they had the same last name. Like, he didn't care. He wasn't impressed. He didn't. He wasn't sitting home watching the NFL, watching Major League Baseball. He probably couldn't name 10 NFL players at that point. He just didn't care. It wasn't his universe. So you're right. He didn't. The idea of going to college, playing in state, being close to his mom, those things were much more appealing to him than a couple hundred thousand dollars from the Yankees. But even like as you see this, as his professional career advanced, money, I mean, like money was important, but it didn't seem to be that important. Like there'd be times where like, you know, the management would like lay down some sort of gauntlet and he'd be like, okay, I just don't care. He'd just walk away. Do you think that indifference came from just his talent? Like he just, he was so talented, he just didn't have to care about this stuff? Yeah. Also, you know, there's a, there's a line from the movie, The Aviator, when Howard Hughes played by Leonardo DiCaprio is in, is at a house and he's having dinner with this wealthy family and it was Catherine Hepburn's family. And they said, the mom of Catherine Hepburn says, we don't care about money here. And DiCaprio goes, it's because you have it. And like, it definitely was easy for Bo Jackson to be indifferent as his career went on because he was making millions and millions of dollars from Nike. And also he had dual full season, really full season professional football and baseball contracts. So he wasn't hurting for money. I think it's more interesting that a guy who is the national spokesperson for Nike, really, and as big as Michael Jordan, didn't really care about attention. Like he kind of wanted, he liked being known as great, but he certainly didn't need to be signing autographs and appearing at store openings. Like he had very little use for that. He didn't like doing that stuff at all. No, he did not. And part of it might be the stutter. Part of it might be the stutter and just the shyness. And again, like we don't talk about this enough in sports, but like oftentimes you're taking dirt poor kids, largely African-American, thrusting them into this world and saying, all right, have a good time swimming. And it's not a natural transition. You know, it's just not a natural transition. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. So uh, at Auburn, he got recruited to play football, but he made it a, a contingency that he got to play baseball too because he wanted to do a- And run track. And run track, right? So there's three sports, which is unheard of today. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of any college athletes that are playing three different sports unless they're at some small you know, Division three college or something. During this time at college, like, what was his career like as a football player and baseball player? Like, where did he excel at? And were there moments where there, like, the legend of Bo Jackson started being cemented? Yeah, well, I mean, his freshman year at Auburn, he became, you know, they ran a uh, a wishbone. So it was, uh, it was a three-back offense. And they had a guy named Lionel. They had a lot of NFL backs there, Lionel James, Tommy Agee, different guys. And he was very good as a freshman, like excellent as a freshman, like freshman All-American freshman. But, there's you know, they played Alabama. And I think Alabama had won the last nine Iron Bowls. The Iron Bowl was the Alabama-Auburn game. And they won this game, Bo going over the top from the one-yard line. And Bo over the top is legend in Alabama. It's still legend in Alabama. 
it's such legend that people forget like that was in late in the fourth quarter, but Auburn got the ball back and Bo actually fumbled and got the ball back to Alabama and, and they they held on to win, but it was close. But that moment, Bo over the top really boosted him from just a guy, a really good Auburn player to sort of an icon. And in baseball, so he played his freshman year and the coach was a guy named Paul Nix. And he was an old school, hardcore, red ass, not a fun guy to play for, would berate his players during games on a bullhorn from the dugout. And Bo decided not to play sophomore year. And he came back when Hal Baird was named the new coach. And Bo Jackson has a moment his junior year in baseball. I mean, he would hit these moonshots. But there's a the first night game at the University of Georgia. They installed these lights, light poles with lights. They never had lights there. And it's a first night game, Auburn, Alabama. And it's a big deal. They print up commemorative tickets. It's a sold-out stadium. Vince Dooley, the legendary Georgia football coach, is there. And they do it on purpose, Auburn, Alabama. And Bo Jackson's playing in the outfield, and the fans are heckling him from behind the fence. And his first at-bat, he grounds out, and the fans are heckling him. And the second at-bat, he hits a home run that hits the lights. Like, it hits the lights. And the place goes silent. Like, silent. And this was 39 days before The Natural came out, where, the, you know, the, the Robert Redford actually hits the lights. It hits the lights. Bo Jackson runs back out to the outfield at the end of the inning and they stand all the fans who are just destroying him stand and start bowing. And he ends up hitting two more home runs in that game. Auburn destroys Georgia and his last at bat, he only doubles and the fans boo him for just doubling. I mean, there's like all this great, and that game is not on video. It's not on tape. I interviewed a million different people from it. And that was kind of him. And that was his, his, his baseball legend really stems in a lot of ways from that game. So he had, a, he had a great freshman year. How did his career pan out the rest of his college career? I mean, it was more hot and cold than people remember football-wise. Like, he got hurt a couple of times. He definitely got the reputation a little bit of being soft, sitting out games. He had an injury against Tennessee, and after the game, Tennessee was like, we just we knew he was soft, and we just wanted to get him out of there, and they did. You know, he won the Heisman Trophy as a senior, and he was the presumed frontrunner from the beginning, and it just kept getting closer and closer and closer because people thought he was lazy. He got this reputation of being lazy. And one of the ugliest, I didn't realize it as ugly at the time, but a huge moment in that season was Sports Illustrated did a cover. And it was three Heisman Trophy, potential Heisman Trophy winners. It was Bo, it was Chuck Long from Auburn, and then it was Joe Dudek from Division Three Plymouth State. And Sports Illustrated made the case that Joe Dudek should win the Heisman Trophy. And, you know, he had all these stats, but he was playing Division Three. And the thing I didn't think about until much later as an adult was the racial component of it. Here's Joe Dudek, scrappy white guy, you know, New Hampshire, works at his dad's store, wears the eye paint under his eyes, his uniform's always muddy. And here's Bo Jackson, African-American. Everything comes easy to him. He doesn't work hard. He's just this guy. He's lazy. And you realize looking back that a lot of these were really racist tropes. That Bo Jackson, he wasn't lazy. He was just freaking gifted. Like he wasn't taking plays off. He was hurt. They He got killed for missing time in another game. And it turns out he had some internal bleeding. You know, like, and I just look back at the stereotypes and the cliches of Bo Jackson and they really make me cringe because he was he was a magnificent college football player. And uh, how do you end up doing in baseball? He was awesome. His junior year is one of the best seasons in Auburn history and SEC history. And, you know, his senior year was going okay. Not great, but okay. And then what happened is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers secured the number one pick in the upcoming NFL draft. And somehow, either via his agent, who Bo Jackson blamed, and he shouldn't have had an agent at that time, or the U Culver House, the owner of the Buccaneers, he thought it was okay to take a flight to Tampa to have a physical with the Bucs. And he flew to Tampa. This is early in the baseball season. And Auburn baseball was playing someone that night. And the head coach, Hal Barrett, asked the player, where's Bo? And someone's like, yeah, he'll be coming. He flew to Tampa for to meet with the Buccaneers. And Hal Barrett said, he did, he did what? He's like, yeah, he flew to Tampa. And Hal Barrett really knew at that moment that his baseball eligibility was done. And it was. He couldn't, uh, under SEC rules, you couldn't play or you couldn't negotiate, couldn't do any of that at the time period, professional. So... That ended his baseball career. He was furious, furious. If you want to know the number one reason he didn't sign with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 
being drafted number one. It's that moment. Well, that's another kind of thing that you talk about too in the book about what college sports was like in the 80s. I think sometimes we forget like how how crazy it was, right? We think college sports is crazy now, but there's just so much like crazy scandal stuff going on. How did Bo Jackson handle the the off-field pressures and temptations of college sports in the 80s? I mean, you have to remember, well, so he, if he had gotten caught, it would have been a mistake. He basically hired this guy named Freeland Abbott to be his business manager, which is a euphemism for agent. So Bo was getting money from this guy and getting goods from this guy and you know, he wasn't caught. And again, like I, I can never begrudge a kid who grew up in poverty, one of 10 taking stuff in college. It's ridiculous that you couldn't, you know, it's preposterous. So, you know, that was the thing they had. Auburn had weird, like Pat Dye wrote in his book, he's since deceased, you know, all about the virtues of running a clean program. And I actually was snorting out loud while reading the book because like they had all these boosters handing players money as they ran off the field. They had a whole scheme of how players could sell their tickets to boosters for thousands and thousands of dollars way above face value. So, you know, it was the, the SEC in particular was a wild west back then. All these guys were getting, or many of these guys are getting paid. Uh, we're having their families taken care of. I talked to a guy named Chuck Clanton, who was a safety on that team, defensive back on the Auburn. And he, he really wanted to go to Florida state and his parents made him go to Auburn because Auburn was giving him so much money. He had no choice. So it was a dirty world. So Jackson finished his collegiate career. It was amazing. Wins the Heisman. Yep. Had a great baseball career despite you know having been ineligible at the end of it. How did he end up playing both professional baseball and football? I imagine that was. I mean, if I was management of like a football team, and I was or as management of a baseball team, I wouldn't want an athlete that I'm paying millions of dollars to potentially to be playing another sport because you might get injured or something else. So how did I mean? How did he navigate that, and how did that happen? Yeah, it's actually kind of a fascinating story. Everyone assumes he's going to football. Like everyone assumes he's going to the NFL. He's going to be the number one big. He's like, I'll never sign with the Buccaneers. And the reaction is, yeah, okay, buddy. Where do you get the money? Of course you're going to sign. Well, he's drafted by the Bucs. And the Buccaneers are convinced he's going to sign with them. And he's saying, I'm going to wait for the baseball draft. And everyone's like, okay, I'm sure you're going to wait for the baseball draft. But he does. And the Royals have him. The Royals are all about Bo Jackson. But they can't use a high pick on him. Because what if he doesn't sign with them? What if he does go to the NFL? It'd be a hard, you can't use a first round pick, can't blow it. So they wait and wait and wait. And uh, finally they get to a later round and Art Stewart, who was the sort of GM at the time or the head of scouting said, we're not going to, it's not going to ruin our franchise if we use this pick on Bo. And they draft Bo and he's all in. Like he does not want to go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He feels like they deliberately ruined his baseball eligibility in college. And he negotiates with the Royals and these long negotiations and they sign to it. They, they agree to a deal. And he has these different out clauses for football in the contract. But he's very adamant. I'm playing baseball. I'm playing baseball. He spends his 1986 with the Memphis Chicks, double A, most of the season. He signs and goes to Memphis. Plays terribly, but get, at the end is really good. Gets a, In his contract, he was guaranteed a call up in September. So he, he's called up September 1986, not far out of college. His first major league at bat is amazing. It's one of the best YouTube clips ever. It's him facing Steve Carlton and beating out a ground ball to second base for a single. It's re- utterly preposterous. And he plays his year in baseball. And he's always saying, don't ask me football questions. Don't ask me football questions. But on the side, he's kind of dropping hints to people. Like, you know, I'm not saying I won't play football. And he had a guy he played football with at Auburn named Chris Woods, a wide receiver who, who actually signed with the Raiders. And one day Bo Jackson said to Chris Woods, he said, tell Al Davis if he drafts me, I'd be interested. So the draft comes around in 87. The Bucks lose his rights. Raiders draft him late. And they kind of reach out to him. And he's interested. And the Raiders are giddy. They're like, you can play half a season. You can take a month off after baseball is done. Take your time. We'll take you for six games, seven games, whatever. And the Royals are livid. Just livid. The teammate, His teammates are furious. Uh, why is this guy getting special treatment? This is bullshit. Blah, 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 blah. But they don't really have a say in it. Like he has contractual control that he can do this. So he goes off and plays for the Raiders. And how did that, I mean, so, I mean, when he played for the Raiders, like how did he manage the friction with the Royals? I mean, was he ever kind of chummy with those guys or was it just kind of just business basically? He was chummy with a few of them, but generally like Willie Wilson was merciless to the media about how mad he was at Bo. Frank White was clearly mad at Bo. 
George Brett was one of his closest friends on the team, and he wasn't thrilled by it, but he was he was supportive. He didn't care. Like he really didn't care. And this is to his credit, not to it. It's not an insult. Like he was all about his wife. He was all about his soon to be kids, his mom, his hometown to a certain degree. I don't care if Kevin Seitzer hates me. Like, why do I care if Jim Sunberg is mad at me? What, 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 how does that impact my life in any negative or positive way whatsoever? It is indifferent to me. I think it's really impressive. I wish I was able to think the way Bo Jackson thinks about things because I think it's impressive. He just didn't care. No, actually, I, I, that's part I, I admired about him after I was reading about it. There was a moment where he was getting criticized by sports writers on the baseball side that he needed to show more leadership. Yeah. And they said his lack of leadership was shown because he just, he didn't get upset after they lost a game. Like he needed to be more sad. And Bo Jackson was just like, why am I going to take that home with me? Like, it's just, it was done. It's a game. You move on. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mope around because I don't want, I don't want that around my family. Yeah, You know, sports, they ask, athletes are asked to play roles. They're almost asked to be actors. I, you know, I've covered sports for a long time. Baseball team loses. You walk in the clubhouse for post-game interviews. It's dead quiet. No one can look happy. And he's just like, he just wasn't that guy. I mean, he wasn't a joyful. He was a pain in the ass for the media. He was not good with the media. So it's not like I'm saying he was wonderful. But like, he wasn't going to do your tap dance for you. He wasn't just going to, you know, put on a, a hat and a little cane and do a jig for you. Like, he wasn't that guy at all. At all. In fact, he would do the opposite. You guys think I'm going to play football? I'm going to play baseball. You guys think I should go to extended spring training? No, I'm going home to be with my newborn kid. I'm not doing it. I don't care. You're going to yell at me? I don't care. I can beat the shit out of you. I'm not going to, but I don't care. He just had that approach to it all. And again, I find it much, much more admirable than I do anything negative about it. Yeah, and there's also moments, you know, after the football season was over or the baseball season or, you know, before baseball season started, like the Royals didn't even have his phone number. No. And so when they were like looking for him, they couldn't find him. And usually he was like off hunting or fishing or just off with his family doing something. It's amazing. It's amazing. The Raiders didn't have his number either. So like they ask Art Shell, the head coach, when is Bo reporting? And his answer is, I think Monday, but it might be Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm not sure. He kind of intimidated people. Like people were afraid to confront him. He was quiet. He was, he could definitely be moody. He was kind of brooding. And like, he just wasn't a guy to mess with. He made it like example. He made it very clear in both sports. He did not like signing things for teammates. And he really did not like signing things for the other sports. So if you were a teammate with the Royals and you brought him Raider gear, he did not want to do that. And vice versa, if you were on the Raiders and guys weren't challenging that. Like no one was coming up to him being like, come on, Bo, don't be an asshole. Like they were not challenging that. He was a, he was a presence you did not want to cross. Um, so, I mean, during through his career, both in football and baseball, were there moments, like what are the, like the key moments you think that just kind of Bo Jackson became Bo Jackson, the Bo Jackson with the shoulder pads and baseball batter across his shoulders, tech mobile Bo Jackson. Yep. I mean, we, we mentioned, you know, running across the, the outfield wall, anything else that stands out to you? Oh, yeah. Bo Jackson is made of neon moments. It's all neon moments. All right. In order, it's him going over the top against Alabama is his first neon moment. Him winning the Heisman Trophy is his second neon moment. He's a rookie in his first major league at bat. He beats out a ground ball to second against a Hall of Fame pitcher, Steve Carlton, who later he later admitted he had never heard of. He didn't know who he was, which is insane. In football, his big coming out moment is Monday Night Football against the Seahawks as a rookie in 87, where he steamrolls Brian Bosworth, but also runs 91 yards for a touchdown and catches a touchdown pass. That was a huge moment for him. In baseball, it's the leading off the 1989 All-Star game at Anaheim with a home run on a picture-perfect day with Vin Scully and Ronald Reagan in the booth with the debut of the Bo Nose, the Bo Diddley ad, as a commercial in that during that game, like the whole Bono's campaign was premiering on the day he led off the All-Star game with a home run. So the timing was amazing. Then there's Bo running up the wall, up and down the wall in Baltimore, which is amazing. Funny thing about that, the guy who hit the ball, Joe Orslack, didn't know until about 10 years ago that he'd been the guy who hit the ball. Like he hit the ball, put his head down, was running hard, looks up, and Bo Jackson has the ball. He didn't know he ran up the wall. And then the other big one in baseball, obviously, is him throwing out Harold Reynolds at home plate, yeah, which is otherworldly and amazing. And those are really the iconic, iconic, him breaking a bat over his head and breaking a bat over his knee also. But those are the iconic moments. And the last real iconic moment for Bo Jackson as a baseball player, uh, as a football player, is the 1991 playoff game against Cincinnati where Kevin Walker comes from behind and grabs his leg and pulls his hip out of the socket. 
that moment is iconic in its own way. Well, that's the injury that that ended his career, correct? Yep, that was it. And it wasn't football. it wasn't just like it pulled out a socket; like it actually like was it damaged the bone, like the bone was degrading. Yeah, so you know he stayed on the sideline for much of the rest of that game. The Raiders handled it terribly; like that guy needed to be in a freaking hospital ASAP, and he wasn't. And he went for x-rays the next day, and the doctor says, shows him, and he goes, Bo, do you see all this dark here? He's like, yeah. He goes, that is all blood. And Bo Jackson said that's the, um, it's the only time he remembers, he hated needles, but it's the only time he really remembered passing out, like almost passing out, was a sick sight of all this pooled blood in his body. And it became, the hip became diseased. And yeah, he needed a new hip. He didn't know at the time, but he needed a new hip. And the next, it's funny, the next week, so the Raiders the following week are going to Buffalo to play the Bills in the playoffs at Buffalo. And Bo Jackson is getting destroyed in the media. He's soft. He's skipping. His heart isn't into it. He's not a real football player. There's a former Raider tight end named Todd Christensen who just lay it lashed out at him. And none of these guys realized that like he was done. He could not do it again and that there was all this internal blood pooling. And he was there in Buffalo. They lost 51-3. to And that was the last time Bo Jackson was at a uh, – was at a Raiders game as a as a kind of player. And what happened to his baseball career? Well, basically what happened is, so it's all like a drama. It's it's really inter- a kind of sports soap opera from here. He has his injury. And the Royals front office is basically saying, man, we fucking told you so. Like, we told you this would happen. We knew this would happen. Like, we told you not to play football and you played football. This is on you. And Bo Jackson did not respond to that well. And he kept the injury kind of quiet, the extent of the injury and the seriousness of the injury. And he's telling everyone, I'm going to report to spring training. I'll be there on time. And actually, the Royals, he, he was up for contract. I think it was arbitration at that point. And he wound up getting a huge deal, one-year deal. And he reports to spring training with the Royals. This is spring 91. And he's on crutches. And everyone's like, whoa. And he keeps telling people, I'm going to be ready. I should be ready. I'm very confident I'll return. But he really wasn't confident. And he was terrified. And he was working out in the pool. And he was on a bike. He couldn't run. And he could barely walk. And he was on crutches. And during spring training, while he was in Alabama meeting with Dr. James Andrews about steps for his hip, the Royals released him. He wasn't even around. They released him. It was really classless. And they just didn't feel like they had a choice. They just didn't feel like they had a choice. And he was so mad at the Royals and he really had no right to be because he did decide to play football. He did get hurt playing football. He was useless as a baseball player. And people were saying at the time, God, this is such a cutthroat business. It's not even that cutthroat of a decision. Why am I going to sign a baseball player when he can't play? It doesn't make sense. Okay. So he's cut from the Royals, but then the White Sox decided to take a shot on him. And they just signed him to like, you know, it's a minimal contract. But at this point, the guy's still on crutches. He hasn't had hip replacement surgery yet. But the White Sox still like, you know, hey, we'll give you a chance. We'll we'll work with you. They had a, a trainer, uh, Ron Snyder, who was, um, I think Ron Snyder, who was really dogged and really determined. And Bo Jackson, he's working out, working out, working out. We're going to, the whole idea was we're going to strengthen the muscles around the hip. So we're going to do everything we can to strengthen everything around this. And they worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And Bo Jackson kept promising, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. Everyone was like, you're not coming back. The Chicago media was really dismissive of this whole carnival. And he came back. He actually came back without a hip replacement. And he was, you know, he was a shell of his former self. He couldn't generate the power. But 1991, he ended up playing 23 games with the White Sox, hit three home runs, had 14 RBIs. His first home run came against the Yankees, Neil Heaton. And it was one of the most emotional moments of his life. Again, he's not a crier and he's not any motor. But that moment of hitting that home run was huge for him because it sh- he did something nobody thought he could do. Unfortunately, he comes back for spring training in 92. And because of the severity of the injury, he's sort of toast. And he's he's a shell of his former self. He's wobbling all over the, hobbling all over the place. His one leg is shrunk a little bit. So he's, he actually has a leg that's shorter than the other leg. And that's when he winds up. It's really sad. He winds up getting hip replacement. Everyone thinks he's done. And uh, he comes back. He sits out off 1992, comes back in 1993, and, and is their DH for a playoff winning team. Well, what was interesting, you talk about when he was initially rehabbing his hip before the hip replacement. That was like the first time Bo Jackson actually 
took training seriously. It, was, it seemed like he, he finally realized like he didn't have that. He couldn't rely on his natural talent anymore. He had to, he had to do something to, to get back to where he wanted to be. Yeah. I, th- I think it was really good for him. Like I think in a while, I mean, I'm not saying that injury is good for him, but I think the awareness, Oh, this is what it's like to be Craig Gerback or Warren Newsom or some journeyman. You know, this is what it's like to be fighting for a job. So you have to really lift weights and you have to swim and you have to exercise and you have to sweat and you're going to stay after his family was in Alabama. He moved in with the Chicago trainer, Herm Snyder. I said, Rob Snyder, it's a comedian, Herm Snyder. He literally moved in with him and would go to the ballpark every day and work out the White Sox built this enormous pool for Bo Jackson, a rehabilitative pool that sort of created waves and such. And he was there every day. And he went from a guy who people dismissed as sort of indifferent to a guy who was busting his ass. And his comeback in 93 is one of the great, I mean, people don't talk about it because he was not what he'd been. I mean, in 1993, he had 232. 16 home runs, 45 RBIs as a part-time DH. It's not a great season, but the comeback is one of his crowning achievements of his life because it, it he was playing with basically your grandma's artificial hip. It wasn't a modern artificial hip. It was a plastic artificial hip. The screws were made of metal. They would chip away at the plastic. It was dangerous. It was, it was you know, archaic. And he came back and was a functioning major league player. When did Jackson decide to retire from sports completely? So he, he signed 1994 with the California Angels, really as a spare part. Their GM was Bill Bavese, and he said to me, he said, I'm going to be honest. We, we hired him, and we signed him as a circus act. Like, we weren't going to be good. He wanted to be out in California, blah, 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 blah. And 94, he's not very good. He's kind of the same level he was in 93. I mean, he hit higher, 279 average, 13 home runs. And that was a strike year. And... You know, by the end of it all, he didn't really like playing with the Angels. They were not a fun team to play for. They weren't very passionate. Fans, I live near here. Fans here are kind of crappy, just indifferent. And when the strike came, he's basically like, you guys would probably never see me again. And he left, and he kept his word, and he never saw him again. He he barely talks to former teammates. He never talks to former managers. He became kind of reclusive without being – he's not a hermit, but he sort of became reclusive. What does he, I mean, he do? Like, what has he done – since then, since he's retired from sports. I mean, all right. So he, when I say, I actually, I take that back a little. He's a spring training instructor sometimes for the White Sox and Royals. And there's actually an endearing clip of him speaking to, I think it was Adam LaRosa's son during a White Sox spring training, explaining to him who he was. And he's like, have you ever heard of a thing called the Heisman Trophy? <laughs> and the kid's like, yeah. And he's like, I won that. He's run a bunch of businesses. He tried acting a little bit. He was in some mediocre movies. He was in a Gene Hackman movie. He was actually pretty good in it. He's run like different food companies, food distribution companies. He's, he lives in suburban Chicago. He shovels his own driveway. He drives his own Ford truck. He likes hunting. He loves barbecuing. He's just a guy. Yeah, when the Uvalde tragedy happened, he paid for a lot of the funerals very quietly. He runs a charity every year bike race called Bow Bikes Bama that started after one of the hurricanes years ago. He gives a lot of money. He's prickly. He's ornery. He's not the best at card shows. He can be a pain in the ass, but he's also endearing and lovable and just happy being a dad and a grandpa. Yeah. Like the way you described, like he just didn't really, he was like, oh, sports is something I did. And that's it. Like he didn't, like he doesn't reminisce about the old days. He's not sad. He just, it's that same Bo Jackson. Like what was really important to him was, was family. I mean, that seems like that was like family was really important to this guy all throughout his life. Very much so. I mean, you have to remember. He grew up with a single mom rejected by his father in poverty. And now he has a wife he loves and he has these three kids who he loves. And he's just endearing in that way. He's endearing, not being endearing. Like, again, you don't, you don't want to approach Bo Jackson while he's eating at a restaurant. You don't, it's not going to be a good scene. He's not going to scream at you, but he's going to give you the look of death and tell you to walk away probably. But he does the important things. Well, he plays a lot of golf too. That's not important. He plays a lot of golf. He's just a likable his life is likable. I think it's much cooler than if you were hosting a podcast right now, you know, talking about his old memories and if he was arguing why he should be in the Hall of Fame. Like, he doesn't give a crap. Yeah. He just doesn't give a crap. It's the best. I love that he doesn't give a crap. So, I mean, after researching and writing about his life, what are the big takeaways or life lessons? I think one is just like, don't care. Don't, don't take this stuff so seriously because it's not that important in the long run, I imagine. That's one lesson, right? I, know, I think that's a huge one. I also think if you want to go a little deeper and this doesn't, I don't think he bemoans it, but 
just because you have a gift doesn't mean you, you can't just coast on your gift. Like he probably coasted on his gift. Like he could have been a much better baseball player, like a much, much, much better base. He had Mike Trout talent, Mickey Mantle talent, but he didn't really want to go to fall league and hang out with prospects and he didn't really want to do that stuff. And the good news is he doesn't care in hindsight. He's not upset about it. But I think the bad news is he could have he could have been a Mickey Mantle or Dave Winfield or someone like that. But he didn't he didn't really work at it hard enough, I don't think. Do you think it was a mistake to play two sports, like spreading yourself too thin? Is that a lesson? That's a good question. I mean, not for him, because I think he did exactly what he wanted. Right. I think if you have if you do it, you really have to think it out. I think in this day, in this day and age where people are much more intelligent about physiology and sort of how the body works and recovery, recovery time, you know, health, nutrition, intake, it'd probably be better designed. Back then it really was, all right, baseball season's done. I'm going to take a couple weeks off. Then I'll play football. Football season's done. All right. I'll nap a little bit. Then I'm going to play baseball. Like the constant abuse on the body without really thinking enough about the body with not, he didn't have a personal trainer throughout those times giving him sort of maintenance tips. Uh, I think that would have helped a lot. Or yeah, you just put ice on it. Like, oh, if it hurts, I ice. That's it. Right. Just ice, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. Well, Jeff, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? I'm on that awful thing called Twitter at Jeff Perlman and my website, jeffperlman.com. And the book is available where, you know, all book buying platforms. Fantastic. Well, Jeff Perlman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. My guest today was Jeff Perlman. He's the author of the book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, jeffperlman.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash bo, where you find links to resources, where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a view on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to not listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.